yesterday I had the uh, the opportunity to uh, officiate a memorial service as well, and uh, it was for a family that I didn't know. It was uh, kind of a connection through a friend of a friend, and kind of the first time that uh, I've ever done a memorial service for somebody I didn't have some you know sort of connection to. Um, and uh, just, you know, a, a day of grieving, a, a day of hope. And uh, you know, the thing I walked away from that with, though, was thinking that, you know, for those who, who don't believe, uh, the only hope that we have is the truth of the gospel. But that's also true for those of us that do believe. The only hope that we have is the truth of the gospel. Um, the, the hope that, that what Jesus said is true and that he is who he says he is and that he did what he said he did. And that's the hope that, that we all have uh, as we think about um, you know, our own mortality and our own finality and matters of life and death. And every week, uh, you know, we endeavor as pastors to bring to you uh, that hope that can be found in the truth of the gospel and so uh, today, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Second Thessalonians. We're making our way through. Uh, uh, we finished First Thessalonians, and now making our way through Second Thessalonians. And uh, in last week's passage, um, Paul speaks of the coming judgment uh, for those who don't believe. But at the same time, he speaks of the preservation that's coming uh, in suffering uh, for those that do. And, and so we are encouraged by that as believers that, that kind of no matter what's going on in the world and no matter how difficult things get, the hope that we have in the message of the gospel is that Jesus is going to, to persevere us through uh, those things. For the afflicted, Paul encourages them to keep doing good uh, in the previous chapter. He encourages them to keep living in a manner worthy of their calling. In other words, living as if the gospel is true and as if we do believe it. Uh, and as we do that, that we get the opportunity to bring uh, glory to God through the church. As we get into today's passage in chapter 2, Paul is addressing a concern that the day of the Lord uh, may have already happened. And so you might remember from uh, 1 Thessalonians that there were this group of people uh, in the church who were idle and they were accused of being lazy because they had quit their jobs and their religious fanaticism so that they could just stand watch and keep an eye out for the return of the Lord. And Paul tells them, like, stop being a religious weirdo and go back to work and provide for your family and, and for yourself. And, and evidently in the second letter, this is still uh, kind of happening, this group of people that think that the day of the Lord, uh, day of the Lord may have already happened. And, of course, we know that, that it hasn't happened because, you know, look around, we're all still here. And so Paul tells them in his encouragement to them, there's a couple of things that have to take place that precede the day of the Lord and the gathering of the saints. And while he's writing to the church about eschatological matters, I don't think his aim here is necessarily uh, to solve all of the mysteries of Jesus' second coming as much as it is to bring encouragement and comfort in the here and now for how Christians ought to live in light of the fact that we do believe that Christ will return and that he will come to gather those that belong to him. So keep that in mind as we go through this section of the second letter. We're going to be in chapter 2, and we're just going to look at the first uh, five verses today. And, and they say this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. 
Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? Now, we, we, love, we love a good mystery, don't we? we? We love our eschatology. We love to dig in and try to figure out what's going to happen and when it's going to happen and who the players are. And we love putting together timelines. I remember years ago as a young pastor, I had this timeline that was up on the wall in my office. The thing was probably 12 feet long. I mean, it just was this long timeline of all the things that have to happen right before the end comes. And, and, and we love that. Uh, and, and we all kind of have our ideas of, of how things are going to happen and when they're going to happen and uh, how things are going to go down. And we hold on to those things pretty tightly. But, um, you know, I've said before and I'll say again that, uh, you know, with our eschatology, if, if we look at this as an opportunity to divide and argue with one another, I think we're kind of missing a point here. <laughs> Right, the, the point of eschatology, the point of the things that are going to come, the end of all things, the point of it is that Christ is coming and that there's, there's a way that we're called to live as Christians in light of the fact that Christ is going to return. Do, do we really believe it's true? Like we look at it as a mystery to be solved, but have you ever stopped and thought for just a moment, like, wait a second, like Christ is going to come back. That there's going to be a judgment for those who don't believe. There's going to be a gathering for those who do believe. What if that actually happens? Do we actually believe that to be true? And again, Paul is, in, is encouraging these people who uh, are thinking that they might have missed the day of the Lord. He, he talks to them in verse 1 about the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ and are being gathered to him and makes it known that that's the reason that he's writing this portion of his letter. And he asks them not to quickly be shaken in mind or alarmed. Like, don't worry, you didn't miss anything. Uh, it's going to be absolutely, without a doubt, unmistakable. When the Lord returns, we're, we're, we're not going to question, is this it? Did it happen? We're not going to question, did I miss it? There's going to be no mistake. And so he's telling them not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, uh, either by a spirit, a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us. And so evidently there must have been some kind of communication in that day. Uh, today we might call it fake news, um, but there's some kind of communication in that day where people were writing as if they were Paul or communicating somehow as if they were Paul uh, in an authoritative way, trying to tell them that they've missed something that they didn't actually miss. And so, so Paul is telling them not to be alarmed uh, because it wasn't, in fact, from them. The day of the Lord had not come. They had not missed anything. And he tells them to not let anyone deceive them in any way. Right? I'm a news junkie. You guys know that about me. And there, there's, you know, every day a, a plethora of conspiracy theories coming in, in my feeds, the headlines that I read. And a lot of those conspiracy theories are coming from the religious right. Like, we love our conspiracy theories, don't we? <laughs> Uh, not we in this room necessarily, but like we as, as a whole, right, the religious right, we kind of like our conspiracy theories. And Paul is saying, don't let anyone deceive you. In other words, pay attention to what he's already taught them. Pay attention uh, and hold fast to the truth of the gospel that you have already learned and don't get bogged down in conspiracy theories uh, that don't pan out. Then he tells them that day will not come, the day of the Lord will not come uh, unless a couple of conditions are met. He says, the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. And so two things have to happen, according to Paul, before Jesus' second coming. And so this conditional statement leaves us with a couple of questions. Uh, what is the rebellion and who is the man of lawlessness? Like those are kind of the million dollar questions uh, for today. Um, and John Piper in his commentary on this passage puts it like this. He says that in God's providence in creating and preserving scripture for his church in all ages, 
God does not see fit that everything the early church talked about with the apostles we get to know. We don't. I take this to be a work of God's wisdom and goodness. It's better for us to know what is preserved in the apostolic writings than that we know about all of the detailed conversations Paul had at Thessalonica. We have what we need for salvation and God-pleasing obedience. We don't have enough to answer all of our questions because we're not meant to. And so there's going to be some mystery that's going to remain in these things. And, and Paul's aim in this text isn't necessarily to crack the nut of exactly what the rebellion is and exactly who the man of lawlessness is. So if you came expecting that today, you're going to be a little bit uh, disappointed, uh, hopefully not fully because there's still lots that we can gather uh, from this passage. But, but what we've been given as it pertains to our eschatology, uh, according to Piper, is everything that we need to live a life of God-pleasing obedience even in spite of the fact that we can't quite solve the mystery, even in spite of the fact that we can't agree on what happens when and, and how it all goes down, that we've been given in God's sovereign plan everything that we need to live a life of God-pleasing obedience and everything that we need for our salvation. And so there's just some things that we're not going to figure out. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't work at it, not saying that we shouldn't study it, not saying that we shouldn't uh, make it a priority, not saying that at all. There's just some things that God has not saw fit to reveal to us this side of heaven. But before he comes to gather his saints, we're told in this passage that the rebellion must come first and the man of lawlessness must be revealed, the son of destruction. And so let's see what we can figure out about these uh, two prerequisites to the coming of the Lord. So Paul gives us a little bit, we'll see in a moment, about the man of lawlessness. He gives us some descriptors about who this guy is, but he really doesn't give us anything about the rebellion. He just says that this thing called the rebellion has to come first. And so we're left kind of to wonder, well, what, what is this all about? What can we know about it? And I think what we can know about it, we can find in Matthew 24. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. Uh, Matthew 24, verses 4 to 12, Jesus talks about, uh, I think, this same rebellion. And Jesus says this. He says to his disciples, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All of these are but the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by nations, all nations, for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will, be, uh, will grow cold. And so I think what Paul has in mind when he's referring to this rebellion, this period of rebellion, uh, Jesus sheds some light on it. And this is more than just the regular, I think, difficulties of Christian living, right? We've, we've been in a pandemic for a couple of years now, and we've seen people come and go uh, from our churches. Uh, I, I don't think Paul is talking about that kind of thing, just kind of the everyday kind of ebbs and flows of, of the Christian life, everyday ebbs and flows of just the difficulties of being in fellowship with one another. I think he's talking about a pretty distinct period in time here um, where there is um, an obvious rebellion, 
Listen again to what Jesus says. He talks about wars and rumors of wars, talks about kingdom against kingdom, famines and earthquakes in various places. And of course, these things have happened throughout our history. But but I think what Paul is zeroing in on here and what Jesus is zeroing in on here is, is an unmistakable time in history where these things are going to be very apparent. And it's not only that just kind of the natural world is in upheaval. He tells us in Matthew 24, uh, verse 8, that these are but the beginning of birth pains. Right? Many of you have probably been through the, the birth and delivery process in one way or another. And you know what labor pains are. And you know how they come on and they're kind of minor at first. And then all of a sudden, like, you're there and it's about ready to happen. Right? This is what Jesus is talking about, the beginning of birth pains. And then as the labor gets more intense, it says they will deliver you, speaking to the Christians. Remember, he's speaking to his disciples. They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. That, that's a pretty good birth pang right there, isn't it? He says, you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. In other words, because you name the name of Christ, people will hate you for it. They, they won't just think that you're weird. They won't just dislike you, but they'll hate you for it. Right? The labor is getting more and more intense. Then he says, many false prophets will arise and, and lead many astray. And so this intensity now is not just the natural world that's in upheaval, not the outside world coming against the church, but false prophets will arise. The indication of that is that they're from within the church and that they'll lead many astray. So they'll lead people from the church astray. And if that's not bad enough, because of all the lawlessness that has increased in this period of time, the love of many will grow cold. So not only are there attacks from outside the church in this rebellion, but there's upheaval from within the church in this rebellion as well. So again, I think a very distinct period in time, um, very um, like we're not going to miss it. We're going we're to know, I think, when we're in the middle of this. It would seem that this is going to be a large-scale type of rebellion with intentional, or that is intentional and identifiable in nature with attacks from outside the church and apostasy from within the church. It'll be a major ordeal, a major um, kind of event, if you will, I think, in world history. And that's what we're told. Now, how, how does this work with people in the church being led astray and the love of many growing cold. This isn't our text today, but I think it's worth mentioning that, that you know, we believe in a doctrine called the preservation of the saints or the perseverance of the saints, however you prefer to phrase that. And, and what that doctrine tells us is that uh, according to Scripture, that Jesus will not lose any that have been given to him by the Father. And so whatever this apostasy looks like from within the church, whatever this falling away is, whatever it is that the love of many will grow cold, uh, it's just important that we um, mention that Jesus will not lose any that have been given to him by the Father. Jesus will not lose any that belong to him. Uh, if you are a follower of Christ and if you have the name of Jesus on you, you will not be lost in this. And so the Thessalonians, they already know a little bit about what this is like. Remember from 1 Thessalonians, the first letter, that this is a pretty new church, still kind of getting their feet under them. And as they're a new church, uh, they are uh, faced with great persecution and great suffering, right? A brand new church starts and right out of the gate, they're not liked by their community. Uh, and they suffer because they're a new church in this community. And so they, they, get a, they get a little glimpse of this kind of rebellion that Paul is talking about in what they're dealing with. And Paul is trying to give them some encouragement that, hey, this is according to the plan. Like for those of you that are so concerned that maybe you've missed the day of the Lord or you're on the lookout for the day of the Lord, just know like the dominoes are starting to fall. 
The plan is going according to the way that it was designed, and you haven't missed anything. So that's what we can know about the rebellion. Again, a distinct period of time um, that, that is going to be unmistakable, undeniable as to what it is. And so that's one thing that has to come first. The other thing that has to come before the Lord returns is uh, the revealing of the man of lawlessness. And Paul gives us a little bit about this man of lawlessness and, and who he might be or what he's going to do. And so right out of the gate, we can say that this man of lawlessness is not Satan because in verse 9, I mean, this is a little spoiler for next week, verse 9 tells us that his activity will be brought about by Satan. So this is not Satan himself. It's seeming to indicate that this is a, a distinct uh, being or a distinct person from Satan. Uh, most theologians and commentator, commentators would agree uh, that this is a reference to the Antichrist. Right? We're told in the Bible that many Antichrists will come, right? but there, there's a person called the Antichrist. And so most would agree that this man of lawlessness is that person. Uh, the identity of the Antichrist, that's very much debated and another topic for another day. Uh, but for our purpose today, let's look at what we can know about this man of lawlessness. So uh, first off, uh, he's called a man, right? The man of lawlessness. And it's not like, yeah, hey, you're, you're the man. It's not that kind of man. Like he's a human being kind of man, right? And so we can uh, take from that just kind of the plain reading of Scripture would indicate to us that, that he's a person. That it's not a demon, it's not a spirit necessarily, uh, not a nation, not a power, uh, so to speak. But but most likely, uh, as the plain reading tells us, that the man of lawlessness is, is a man. Uh, he's a man of lawlessness. In other words, he's opposed to order and justice and truth and righteousness. Right? He's all about lawlessness. Now, we, we live in a society today, and this has probably been true you know, for all of history, like we're, we're just rebels as human beings, aren't we? We don't want to do anything so bad except when someone tells us that we can't do it, right? Then we want to do that thing worse than we want to do anything else, and it's because of the rebel in us, right? Don't go there. Well, I didn't want to go there, but now that you told me not to go there, that's that's the only thing I want to do now, right? I've shared this before, but I had a friend years ago who made these little Bible tracks, and I hate Bible tracks. I'm sorry if you like them, but I hate them. Um, and he made these little Bible tracks, and it would just say in bright red letters, don't read this, and then he would just throw them on the ground wherever he went or leave them at a table. And he would stand back and watch, and every time people would pick it up and read it because it said, don't read this, right? We're rebels. It's who we are as our human nature. This man of lawlessness is the rebel of rebels, opposed to anything having to do with order, opposed to anything having to do with justice, truth, and righteousness. Now, we can look at Jesus and say Jesus is the exact opposite of that. Jesus fulfilled the law. Jesus didn't come to oppose the law. right? Jesus didn't come to rebel against the powers that be. right? Jesus came to fulfill the law. He came to do what you and I are not capable of doing in our rebellious state. He came to bring to us justice and he came to bring to us truth not only to bring us truth the bible tells us in john fourteen six that he's the truth he's the way the truth the life or he came to to bring truth to be truth he came to bring us righteousness to be our righteousness as we're told in second corinthians 5 this man of lawlessness who's a man who's opposed to every kind of order justice truth and righteousness is also called the son of destruction and he's called the son of destruction because he's destined to be a destroyer he comes to destroy not only to oppose truth justice order and righteousness but to destroy those things 
But we look at Jesus, and what do we know about Jesus? John chapter 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And all things that were created were created through Him. Jesus came not to destroy, but He's the Creator. And this man of lawlessness is opposed to Jesus in this way, that, that he's the son of destruction because he's a destroyer. But not only that, his destiny is that he'll be destroyed. This is another spoiler alert for next week. Don't tell David I'm doing this. But, but a few verses down, we see that Jesus shows up on the scene. This man of lawlessness is doing his thing, right? Destroying, opposing. He's doing his thing and Jesus shows up and it says that he comes to an end just by Jesus' breath. Jesus shows up and... And the guy's done. All of his disorder, all of his lawlessness is done. It's over. right? So not only is Jesus the creator, but he's the destroyer of the son of destruction. And this son of destruction, this man of lawlessness, as hard as he might try, is destroyed by Jesus' breath. Not even a snap of the finger, not even a spoken word, just like, and he's gone. His destruction is over. But before that happens, this man of lawlessness, it says that he opposes and he exalts himself. He's self-centered. Right? What do we know about Jesus? Jesus didn't show up and say, hey, everybody, look at me. Right? Jesus, we're told, is the exact imprint of the Father. And we're told that if we've seen him, we've seen the Father. Right? Jesus came on a mission to save the lost, to, to gather all the Father has given him to glorify the Father, right? to point us to the Father. I think of Jesus in the Garden of Eden as he's about to go to the cross and, and he prays. Remember this excruciating moment where Jesus prays so intently he's sweating blood, the Bible tells us. And do you remember what his prayer was? He's asking the Father, hey, if there's any other way, like now might be the time to tell me. Nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He came to submit to the Father. He came to submit to the will of the Father. And so, so this man of lawlessness, he opposes uh, and exalts himself. He opposes everything, everything that's orderly, everything that's righteous, everything that's just, everything that's true. And he exalts himself above everything. He exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. Now, this is pretty audacious right here. Right? We're a self-centered people. We get it. Right? We know what it is to be self-centered. Right? I'm, I'm the best guy I know most days. I'm my own favorite person most days. Right? Probably true for you. We, we know what it is to be self-centered. But this, this man of lawlessness says that he exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. That's about as self-centered as I can imagine it getting. Right? I might be able to say some days like I'm the best person of the people that I know. Right? It's, it's not true, but like we can get there. Right? <laughs> But, but, but this guy, like, um, he, he's the best person in, in the entire world, so much so that he exalts himself as the ultimate God, the ultimate object of worship. Right? We're not going to miss this guy. We're not going to be questioning, is it this person, is it that person? Right? We're going to know it's that person when that time comes. And if it's not audacious enough to exalt oneself against every so-called God or object of worship... We have to look again at like, who is Jesus? Jesus came and stepped into human flesh in the form of a baby, right? The savior of mankind, the creator of the universe, the one who wields all the power, 
Right? We're told in Matthew 28 that all authority has been given to Jesus. Right? And how is it that he shows up to be the Savior of mankind? He shows up as a baby who needs to be fed and who needs to be changed. He came in humility. Right? He, he didn't show up you know, with a sword and a shield ready to take names. That, that day's coming, but that's not how he came the first time. He came in humility. This man of lawlessness comes in with nothing but pride and arrogance, exalting himself above every god and every object of worship. So much so that we're told that he takes his seat in the temple of God. Now, there's some debate among people smarter than me about what this temple, if it's like the actual literal temple in Jerusalem or if it's something else. But, but the point is, is that this man of lawlessness puts himself in the place of God. Wherever it is, whatever it looks like, he puts himself in the place of God. In other words, assuming upon himself all authority. Assuming upon himself the power, the authority, and the position that have been given already to Jesus Christ. And then, if that's not audacious enough, he proclaims himself, we're told, to be God. He proclaims himself in the end, to be God. Now, something else that we know about the end and when it gets here. Philippians chapter 2 tells us that there's going to come a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That's coming. That's We can take that to the bank. That's guaranteed. That moment in history, or moment in time, uh, is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And there is nobody, not this man of lawlessness, son of destruction, son of perdition, your translation might say, there's nobody that can put themselves in the place of God because all of creation one day will acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. And we're not told, we're not given a distinction between those who acknowledge it willingly and those who acknowledge it unwillingly. We're just told that everybody's going to acknowledge it. Everybody's going to know that Jesus Christ is Lord and will acknowledge that. They'll confess it, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, between now and then, we, we have this mission, right, as the church to make sure that as many people know that as possible before that day comes because when that day comes, if you're forced to bend your knee and it's not willing, like, you know, the time to acknowledge it is over, right? The time to willingly acknowledge it is over. The, the mission that God has given us as the church has an end date to it. It has an expiration date. Right? When, when we're all in eternity, like the, the mission of proclaiming the gospel to all of creation, it's over at that point. And this, this man of lawlessness, as he seats himself in the place of God and proclaims himself to be God, is sadly mistaken because that day where every tongue confesses and every knee bows, that, that day is coming and they're not going to bow to him and they're not going to confess to him. Matter of fact, by the time that day comes, the will have already happened and the, and the guy will be done. And so whoever this Antichrist is, whoever this man of lawlessness is, as we've seen here very simply that he's the exact opposite of who Jesus is in every way. The exact opposite of who Jesus is. And as great as this guy thinks he is, as audacious as he is to seat himself in the place of God, to exalt himself as if he were God, he'll be ended by the breath of Jesus' mouth at the time that Jesus decides that that needs to be done. The sad part about this is that, that people are going to buy into it. 
right? People are going to buy into it. They're going to follow. They're going to follow this guy. And imagine in the moment when Jesus shows up and breathes his breath and this guy is done, what are those going to be? What are those people going to be left thinking that have bought into this deception and followed this antichrist? This is why Paul tells us it's important that we don't be deceived. It's important that we don't buy into like weird theories and, and all these things. It's important that, that we stick to Scripture and what we can know. And Paul is reminding the Thessalonians of what he taught them and to stick with what he taught them. In verse 5 he says, Do you not remember that when I was still with you I told you these things? So he's recalling to them his time. And we don't have record of what exactly his time with them was. We don't have record of everything that he taught them. And again, according to, to Piper's quote, we're not meant to have it. But whatever that was, he's recalling to them, remember what you were taught. Remember the word that you were given. And Paul, like we know when he would go to places, he would spend time with people. He would roll up his sleeves and get his hands dirty with people, teaching them the scriptures, teaching them the truth of the gospel as the only hope that they have. And he's reminding them, you have hope in, in what you've been taught, and so don't let go of that. We can surmise from this verse that Paul did speak to them in detail about the last things when he was face-to-face -face with them. But again, we don't have a record of what he taught them. But it was an important enough topic where he did spend some time with them talking about eschatology and understanding the last things. Our understanding of eschatology becomes more than just an intellectual endeavor. There's an aspect to it that is an intellectual endeavor. Some of these things are hard to understand, hard to figure out. Right? When we read apocalyptic literature, it's sometimes hard to interpret. So, so there is kind of this intellectual endeavor to it, but our eschatology is much more than a mystery to be solved, much more than an intellectual endeavor Rather, it's a topic that when we approach it properly, it becomes a reason for us to worship God. Right? Who, who do you want to worship? Do you want to worship the person that exalts themselves to be God and seats themselves in the place of God? Or would you much rather worship the guy that shows up and goes, and that guy's over, right? <laughs> that, that's the God that I'm going to follow. That's the God that I'm going to worship. And that's the thing that as we dig into our eschatology. We know that Jesus wins in the end. Whatever happens between now and then and the mysteries that we can't quite figure out, we know that he wins. Right? We know that, that he doesn't lose any that belong to him. We know that he takes home with him all that the Father has given him. We know that, that Jesus has been preparing a place for us because our Bible tells us that. We know that. We know that to be true. And so whatever happens between now and then, however hard it may get or may not get between now and then, whether we go through great persecution or whether we don't, whether it's tomorrow or whether it's a hundred years or a thousand years from now, whether it's in my lifetime or not, in the end, Jesus wins. Jesus wins and those that belong to him win as well. So our eschatology, first and foremost, ought to be a reason for us to worship who God is and what he's done, much more than just a mystery to be solved. Matthew 24 goes on in verse 13 and 14 to say this, that the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so Jesus kind of gives us this other thing that has to happen before the end will come. 
first we're reminded that, that, the, that the one who belongs to Christ, the one who, who has Christ's stamp on him, that you will endure till the end. Whatever it is and however it comes to be, you will endure to the end and you will be saved. But the third thing that has to happen before the end will come is that the gospel of the kingdom will be claimed, proclaimed throughout the whole world. Right? We, we can measure a lot of things today. And, and we know that there are certain uh, parts of the world that just have not been reached with the gospel. Right? They didn't know that 100 years ago. We know today exactly where the gospel has not gone. We know. We know people groups. We, we know languages. We know tribes. Like we know where the gospel has not gone. And Jesus tells us that before the end comes, that the gospel will go to those places that it has yet to go. Right? And that, that's the connection with the mission that you and I get to play a part in. That's the connection with uh, the call in Matthew 28 to go into all of the world right, and to proclaim the good news of the gospel, make disciples and to teach people to obey all that Jesus has commanded. That's the connection to the mission. And so the end will come, whether it's tomorrow or 100 years from now or 1,000 years from now, the end will come. And between now and the end, the mission has to be fulfilled. right? And so... As the church, we ought to leave from this encouraged to, to worship the God that can destroy the destroyer, destroy the destroyer simply with the breath of his mouth, and the God that has told us to go out into all of the world and proclaim the hope that can only be proclaimed in the message of the gospel. And that's how the end will come. Right? And we're not going to miss it. It's going to be undeniable and unmistakable. And the most undeniable and the most unmistakable part of it will be that all of creation will acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the side that we're on, right, as the church. We're, we're on his side, and, and that should encourage us. It should cause us to worship him. It should cause us to engage in the mission out of concern for uh, our fellow human beings. It should cause us to engage in the mission in obedience to Christ and as an act of faith in him and as an act of worship to him that we would engage in, in being proclaimers of truth and hope throughout the world. So if we take anything from today, if, if we didn't quite solve the mystery of exactly what the rebellion is or when it's going to happen, exactly who this man is uh, or how it's going to come to be, just know that these things are going to be unmistakable and, and we have work to do between now and when those things come to be. Father, we're thankful for today. Thankful that you love us. Thankful that you've given us your word. Thankful um, more than those things, God, that you are uh, sovereign over all, that you are the ultimate power, the ultimate authority, uh, that there is no uh, so-called God that could exalt himself uh, above you. And so, Father, cause us today to worship you because that's true. Cause us today uh, to engage in ways that we haven't engaged before in the mission of proclaiming the truth of the gospel to those around us. God, help us to be a church that uh, is a beacon of hope uh, here in our community, um, that we can see people come to know you who desperately need you. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.